And if you'd open your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy this morning, 2 Timothy chapter number 3. And uh, also take that program that was given you and open it up to the place there that says Sermon Notes. And there's some blank spaces, and there are five words there. If you get these five words, if you can clearly understand and define these five words and retain them, you will have the essence of what the message is about today. I felt really constrained to preach on this. I'll tell you how this started. I uh, was thinking about our young people in the Christian school and thinking that I don't interact with them as much as I would like. And I told the principal, I said, I want to come over there and teach Bible. And so this fall, I'm going to do something I've never done in 42 years. I'm going to go in the Christian school, and in fact, starting next Monday, I'm going to teach the seniors for one week, and then I'm going to teach the juniors for one week, and I'm going to teach the sophomores for one week, and I'm going to teach the... uh, what do you call the people who are just starting out? Freshmen one week. And I knew that. I just wanted to see if you were listening. And so I'm going to teach them all one week, and I'm going to teach them all the same thing. And what I'm going to teach them is what I'm teaching you right now because I got to studying this, and I got so excited and motivated. I said, you know what? This is the most important thing there is, and it really is. This is the foundation doctrine that we believe in Bible-believing, Bible-centered churches. After all, you, you probably would say it's the plan of salvation and the cross. If I said, what's the most important doctrine? But if you didn't know you had a Bible that was accurate, why would you think that the cross would be true? You see, this underlies everything. This was the issue of all issues about 15, 20 years ago when the Southern Baptist Convention was badly divided with a lot of liberalism, and then there was a lot of conservatives. And they had a watershed meeting. And uh, through a process of time, Dr. or uh, Judge Paul Pressler, who came and visited us and preached for us Sunday morning and Sunday night a few years ago, and through his leadership and Jerry Vines, who comes here every year, and Bobby Welch, who preached a revival here, and people like that, we, were, that we, we saw the convention pull back to a very conservative position in those days. Now, sadly, it's maybe drifting again in some areas. But the thing is, the issue of all issues, Dr. Paul, or I call him Dr. Judge Paul Pressler said, he wrote a book called A Hill on Which to Die. Now, I love that term because what he was really saying is, there are some hills that we're willing to die for, some issues that we'll pay any price, the ultimate price for. Now, there's some other hills we won't die on. They're important to us, perhaps, but they're not worth dying over. So you don't want a whole lot of hills on which you would die. You know, you you don't want to die for everything. I'm not going to die on y'all chewing gum in church. But when it comes to my subject of today, This is the hill on which Bible-believing people, God's people, ought to be willing to die because it's the foundation doctrine of all doctrines. And so uh, I hope that you, I'm glad you're here. 
I've had a little trouble getting it all lined out because we have we had Jimmy DeYoung, and that broke broke up a series, and then we have uh, John Roseman coming, and then we have other events, and I'm having a hard time when I can just teach week after week. In fact, it's so important to me that you get this, that uh, we're going to offer it on CD, we're going to offer it on our website, we're going to put it on a podcast, you can get it on iTunes, we've even come up with another thing, you can get one of these little flash drives, and it'll be very cheap, we're going to get the cheapest one possible, because the cheapest one will hold more than this series, and for Two or three, four or five dollars, whatever it's going to sell for when we get through. You can stick that in your computer, and you would have this on your computer, and you can download it to it. If you ever buy a CD or this material, buy this series more than any other. I wish you'd get it because it is the most important, the integrity of the Word of God. I call it on a shelf by itself, on a shelf by itself. Because you take all the books in the world, but there's one that goes on a shelf by itself. It's unique. It is the Bible, the Word of God. Now, take your Bible and stand to your feet with me, please, and let's read from its pages this morning. And uh, read with me aloud. Everybody, one, two, three, good start. Everybody, good and strong together, beginning in verse 15, 2 Timothy 3, 15. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished, unto all good works. And will you pray with me, please? Bow your heads. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we come into your presence this morning. We come with thanksgiving for life and health and for this Lord's Day. And I thank you for the opportunity that I can preach this wonderful, wonderful message that your Word is unique. It's on a shelf by itself. I pray for all who will watch this on television or hear it on a CD. I pray for all who are gathered here this morning, those who are seeing it on a computer via live stream. Wherever people hear this, Lord, open their hearts because this is the hill on which to die. Oh, give me the hearts of the people who listen today, that they will listen and they will think and that they will apply. Oh, Lord, that they will build their families on this, that they will build their individual lives on this, that our church will never stray from this. Oh, God, speak to us. In Jesus' name I pray and for his sake, amen. And you may be seated. My title, as I said, is On a Shelf by Itself. And today we look at inspiration, the foundational doctrine. There is no book comparable to the Bible, not even close to the Bible. It is the oldest book in print. 
It is the best-selling book in print. At the same time, it is both the most hated book and the most loved book in print today in the world. But more important to us gathered here, it is the basis for all that we believe. If you believe something that's not in here, then you believe in error. If you don't believe what is in here, your view is erroneous as well. This determines our doctrine, and it also determines how we live as Christians. This book is the final authority for my life. I do not depend upon the way that I feel about something. How do you feel about a certain issue? Well, if the Bible addresses it, it doesn't really matter how I feel. The Bible is to shape and to inform my opinion. It's the final authority for my life. Now, last week, the word was revelation, and revelation and inspiration are very close in what they mean, but they are very definitely different. I told you that revelation meant the supernatural communication of truth from God to man. God in heaven supernaturally communicated truth about himself and about the world in which we live from God to man. And I told you there were two sources, generally speaking, of revelation. First of all, there's what we call general revelation. General revelation meaning nature. I can look at nature itself and learn some things. I, I can look at nature and know that God is powerful. It took a powerful, powerful being to bring the universe into existence. I can look at nature and I can see that God must have infinite intelligence and capacity for understanding and wisdom to be able to design all the things that we see in the natural world. General revelation, nature, if you will. However, general revelation fails. It does not tell me that God is a God of love or that he is a God of holiness. It does not tell me that God is a God of mercy and compassion and grace, and I could go on with a lot of other areas. General revelation doesn't tell me that. And so I need special revelation. And so the second kind of revelation is special, referring to the Bible. God supernaturally gave us his word, the Bible, special revelation. And as I told you last week, the scriptures did not originate with man. People will say to me, well, Brother Bill, I I don't understand how those men could have written a perfect book. Well, those men only served as a conduit for a perfect book. God, the scripture originated in the mind, in the heart, in, in God himself. Also told you last week that the only knowledge you have of God is what he's chosen to reveal. You may sit down somewhere and look at the sunset and get a good feeling and say, God spoke to me. Well, you don't know that. It might have been something else that you felt. There's no way to know for sure what is God's revelation and human experience except through the Bible. You know what you can know for sure what the Bible says about God. 
And we only know what he's chosen to reveal, and we know no more, by the way, than what he has chosen to reveal. And people often say to me, God said to me, or God revealed to me, no, he didn't. Now, you need to get your language accurate. You, you, if you're telling me that God revealed something to you, then you're adding to the Scripture by definition. And the Bible says God has ceased from giving revelation. So, no, God didn't reveal anything to you other than what is in the Scripture. He didn't tell you to go upstairs or to get on flight so-and-so. No, God doesn't do that. He reveals only through the Scripture His specific will and knowledge. And so, another thing I told you is we don't know any more about God than what we know of the Bible then. So, you say, I don't know much about the Bible. Well, then you need to study because you don't know any more about God than you know of the Scripture. And then I told you last week that God is not a, the Bible rather, is not a revelation of everything that we know. Or, pardon me, I said that wrong. The Bible is not a revelation of all that God knows. The Bible is a revelation of what God wants you and me to know. Now, the Bible is all God's Word, but God knows far more than He put within the pages of this book. There's many things that God knows He didn't tell us. The Bible is not a revelation of all that God knows, but it's a revelation of what God wants you and me to know. And so God supernaturally managed the entire process from His mind and His heart to the Scripture that I have written here today, through the Bible writers, God actually managed and directed that process so that we could have a trustworthy account of His Word. He used about 40 different authors to write this book, very different kinds of people, kings, fishermen, farmers, all different kinds, socioeconomic levels of people. God used 40 different authors. And these people lived on three different continents. Some of them were from Europe, some from Asia, and some from Africa. And so all different kinds of people, 40 different people, if you will, three different continents. They wrote in three languages. Your entire Old Testament is in Hebrew, ancient Hebrew. And then the New Testament was written mostly in what we call Koine Greek, or part of it was written in what we call Aramaic. And so we have 40 people. We have them from three continents, all different types of cultures, writing to us what we call the Scriptures. God used all those people. And what is really amazing is that they wrote over a 1,500-year period of time, 1,500 years, meaning if somebody had started writing the Bible in 700 A.D., they would just now be finished. It took that long for it to come about. Now, here's the amazing thing. If I took 40 people at random from this congregation and I said to them, now, I want you to write a chapter about what you think about Christianity. Do you think that 40 people could agree? And I would read all of those, and it would be without contradiction or error. I don't think you could get three of them to agree. Probably not two. But here are 40 people from three continents 
with three different languages over a 1,500-year, 15-century period of time, and they're all writing, and they're all, they all write with a unity, a theme that comes out and reveals to us the will and Word of God for us. If you're taking notes with me, number one, inspiration. Let's talk about what that word means. I told you what revelation means, the supernatural communication of truth from God to man. Let's talk today about inspiration. And I want you to remember two things there when you fill out your blank there on your paper because that's one of the words. What does inspiration mean? It means God breathed or breathed out by God. So let's, let's look at our Bible again now in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Or let's read it like this. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. So the Scripture didn't start in the heart of some man or some woman or some prophet. The Scripture started in the heart, in the mind of Almighty God, and He breathed out the words of the Holy Scripture. Now, inspired, when we use it like that, it doesn't mean what it means when we use it in common everyday English. For example, we say, uh, well, the football team wasn't doing very well in the first half, but the coach took them in the locker room, and boy, he had a fire them up pep talk. And you know what? Those guys got inspired, and they came out on the field, and they were a different team in the second half. That's not what we're talking about here. It simply means to breathe out, to breathe out. Scripture is breathed out by God. It doesn't mean the same thing when somebody says today, for example, well, I read this poem or I heard this song or the pastor preached a message and it inspired me. I was inspired by that song or that poem. That's not what we're talking about here. It's not even the same thing at all. The word inspired, inspiration in your Bible means God breathed, breathed out by God. It comes from two words, and it's a Greek word, two of them put together. Theopneustos, theopneustos. Theos, T-H-E-O-S, meaning God. And the word we use for air or breath, pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A. So somebody gets an infection in their lungs and we say they have what? Pneumonia, P-N-E-U-M-A. That's the same Greek word, pneuma. <laughs> it's pneuma, pneuma, the P is silent. And so they have a breathing problem, pneumonia. Or a fellow is down here working on the highway and he has a jackhammer. And we say it's a pneumatic hammer, meaning it's, it's powered by air pressure. Same word, pneuma, breath, also used in the Bible sometimes as spirit. And so this, you put the two together, theos, God, and breath, God's breath. And you hold in your hand the breath of God, the words that God spoke, written down. So I take a breath. I take air and fill up my lungs. 
And then my tongue and my teeth and my lips shape that air as it comes out, and it comes over my vocal cord, and you hear a word with your ear. But it originated right down in here. And when people are so weak and sick sometimes, they cannot even talk because they don't have the strength to push the air across the vocal cord with enough strength that they can even make a sound. That's the idea. Only it was God who took, if you will, a breath, and God spoke His Word, inspiration. Now, I want you to go to the book of Matthew in your Bible, and I want you to look at it with me because Jesus said exactly what I've just told you, and Jesus affirmed this, and that's pretty good. That's a pretty good witness I have for what I'm telling you to be the truth, isn't it? So Matthew chapter 4. And verse number four, he answered and said, and he's speaking to Satan in the temptation. It is written, Satan, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. The words proceeded out of the mouth of God. That, ladies and gentlemen, is inspiration. Now, Keep your finger there in 2 Timothy, but go with me to the book of 2 Peter, if you will. 2 Peter. Turn there. I want you to see these, and I want you to mark these in your Bible. So we know what inspiration is. Inspiration means God breathed out the very words of the Scripture to the writers. So how did God communicate those words to the writers? And in 2 Peter chapter 1 And verse number 21, we read this, the prophecy, meaning the Bible, the words of the Scripture, came not in the old times by the will of man. Some guy didn't sit down and say, this is what I think, and wrote it out. No. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Bible writers How did God communicate the words of Scripture to the writers? Well, these men sat, and there you see a picture there on the screen. A man has a scroll in front of him, a piece of parchment. He has a pen. There's a candle to give him light. And he is writing out the words of Scripture. And how does he know, how did the Bible writers know what to write? I want you to notice that phrase there, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. They were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, when I talk to people and they tell me they don't believe the Bible's inspired, most of them honestly don't have any concept of what I'm talking about right now. I want you to get a hold of this. So here was Peter or Paul or one of the Bible writers. How did he know what to write down? He didn't just look into his mind and write down what he thought. The Bible says the Holy Spirit moved upon him. Let me tell you about that word moved. That word moved there is the idea of a sailboat. And it's blown by the power of the wind. And it has its sails up. And the the captain of the boat sets the sail in such a manner. and And the wind fills those sails and it pushes that boat across the water. And... The man, by moving the sail, can direct every single, uh, uh, can direct the path of the ship accurately and exactly like he wants it to be. And so the Holy Spirit 
was present when Paul was writing out the words. Peter wrote these words that we're looking at. And the Holy Spirit moved upon him, pushed him along. Peter, don't say it like that. Say it like this. And the Holy Spirit directed every word of Scripture. That's why it's reliable. Somebody didn't, these prophets didn't just sit down and write what their opinion was about something. They were moved upon by the Holy Ghost. Now, if that's true, you don't have any problem believing in an inspired Scripture. But if that's not true, then you would have a great difficulty believing in the inspiration of the Scripture. The writers moved. They were driven or borne along by the Holy Spirit of God. And just as God spoke the universe into existence, so God spoke the Scriptures into existence. And He did it through these holy men who wrote down the words of Scripture as the Holy Spirit moved upon them. Go with me to the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. This is one of the early mentions of anything like this. So turn to Exodus chapter 20, and I'll show you how God, the different ways that God directed the Scriptures to be written. In Exodus chapter 20, He verbally spoke the Scripture to Moses, audibly spoke to him, I believe. And so in Exodus chapter 20, what does the Bible say? Verse 1, God spoke all of these words saying. So God literally audibly spoke to these Bible writers. Go back with me, if you will, to chapter 5 or chapter 6, if you will, the book of Exodus. Chapter 6 and verse 1, the Lord said to Moses. Go to chapter 7, the Lord said to Moses. Verse chapter 8, the Lord spoke to Moses. Verse, or chapter 9, the Lord spoke to Moses. Chapter 10, the Lord said to Moses. Over and over and over, do you get the point that I'm making to you? That God spoke over and over and over to these Bible writers And how did he speak? I assume he spoke audibly, but it doesn't say that. I don't know. There's one part of the Scripture that says that God wrote it with his finger. Exodus chapter 31 and verse 18, the Ten Commandments, were written with the finger of God into stone tablets. Only God could have done that. In in Ezekiel and Daniel, these men said they saw visions and dreams. But they were born by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit guided and directed them. You and I have a vision, or we have a dream. We can't, we can't prove that that was from God. But these men spoke out their vision and their dream, and they recorded it. In Isaiah chapter 6, you have God speaking to Isaiah and telling him to record his own experiences, some experience that he had in life. And so Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. He describes an experience that he had, a literal time, space experience that he had. In Luke chapter 1, I want you to read that one with me. Go to the book of Luke, and it's chapter number 1, because this one's very different and very interesting. We're We're talking about how God spoke to these holy men who wrote down the Scriptures. Luke chapter 1 and verse 1. Luke was a physician, a medical doctor, as you know. 
But he got saved early on, and he probably observed the ministry of Jesus Christ, though he was not one of the 12. He probably was right there with most of what was happening. And he says that here. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order, chronologically, a declaration of the things that are believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses. Now, Luke said, I was an eyewitness to the things that happened here. I was there the day that Jesus fed the 5,000. I was there. And when I wasn't there, the Holy Spirit revealed it to me. And it seemed good to me, verse 3, having had perfect understanding. Now, only God can give you that. Of all things from the very first to write unto you, uh, unto you in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of the things wherein you have been instructed. And so Luke says, I was an eyewitness of the events in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ that were written down here in his word. And others, God spoke to people And we don't know how he did it. The Scripture doesn't say. Did God speak audibly to them? Perhaps. Did he guide their thinking process and control their thoughts? I think so. And so through this different uh, and various ways, verbally speaking, visions and dreams, experiences, eyewitness accounts, interviews with people, and audible revelation from God. God said the Holy Spirit directed these men, and what they wrote down was, in fact, the Word of God. And yet, miraculously, God left intact their personalities. And so Samuel and Jeremiah write like a prophet, and Amos writes like a farmer, And uh, Luke writes like a doctor, and Paul writes like a scholar, because that's what they were. That was their personality. That was what they had experienced in their life. Now, how much of the Scripture then is inspired? And we go back to our text, 2 Timothy 3. Will you look with me? I want you to circle a word. It's a very important word. It's a little word, but it is critically important, all. All, all Scripture. Genesis 1-1, inspired. Revelation 22-21, inspired. The book of Psalms, inspired. The genealogies in the opening chapters of Chronicles. You and I don't like to read them. They don't mean much to us, but they're inspired. But inspiration extended to all Scripture, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable and all the other things that it says about it there. Now, we call that plenary. So you have a word there in your bulletin, in your program, plenary. And when when Bible people talk about the Scripture and the different modes and ways of inspiration, we talk about plenary. And what does plenary mean? It means extending to the whole, everybody. And if you go to a big convention somewhere, they'll say, we have a session over here on this and a session on this and a session on this and a session on this. But then we're going to have a plenary session. What does that mean? Everybody comes together. We don't break off into the groups. 
we all come to the same place. So plenary inspiration means that God's inspiration, that the Holy Spirit directed the Bible writers to every single part of the Scripture is equally inspired. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 18? He said, my word will never pass away. He said, even the jots and the tittles are inspired. Now, what was a jot and a tittle? They're little punctuation marks that they wrote in Greek and Hebrew that you don't, I don't have in English. But it would be sort of like an accent mark on, on, a, on a word. And Jesus said, even the jots and tittles, the smallest part of the alphabet will never pass away, that his word is absolutely uh, inspired to the fullest extent. Then we use another word, because plenary just means all of the Scripture in general, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, all of it. But there's a second word we use, and that's verbal. That's on your sheet there. And what we mean by that, verbal, you think of that, that means words, doesn't it? And so we mean the very words of Scripture are inspired of God. That inspiration extends even to the very words of the Scripture. Now, why do I say that? Because there are people today who teach, well, the, I believe the thoughts, the concepts are inspired The pastor, are you telling me the words? I'm telling you every word of God is inspired. That's what I'm telling you. The word of God, the words. And so we say we believe the verbal plenary inspiration. We believe that the Bible's inspired beyond the thoughts and the concepts and the ideas and all that, the very words. Now, listen to me. All the Scripture is inspired. Every word of God is inspired. But it's not all equally important. It's not equally important. Did anybody get real blessed reading those names in uh, 2 Chronicles, the first five chapters there? It's a Hebrew telephone directory, isn't it? You 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 don't know what that means. Zedekiah beget Malachi, who beget, and it goes on and on and on. Is that inspired? Absolutely. All the Scripture is inspired. Is it as important as John 3.16? I don't think so. It is all equally inspired, but it is not all equally important. It's more important, obviously, when you're studying the plan of salvation than it is when you're studying uh, the, the genealogies of the Bible. But remember this, verbal plenary inspiration. How much of the Bible is inspired? Every page, every verse, every word. An unknown poet said it like this. He said, there are really not very many options when it comes to the writing of Scripture. Either the Scripture was written by good men, but it says it was written by God, so if good men said they wrote it, then they lied. They were not good men. Or it was written by bad men. Well, bad men couldn't write a book like this. Or crazy men, but crazy men couldn't write a book like this. Or it was written by God. 
And here's his little poem. I love it. I've used it through the years. The Holy Bible must have been inspired of God and not of men. I could not if I would believe that good men wrote it to deceive. And bad men could not if they would and surely would not if they could proceed to write a book so good. And certainly no crazy man could e'er conceive its wondrous plan. And pray what other kinds of men than do these three groups comprehend. Hence, it must be that God inspired the word which souls of prophets fired. Yes, the Bible was written by God. All the Bible was written by God. The words of the Bible were written by God. Now go to Titus chapter 1 with me, if you will. The book of Titus chapter 1. And so how trustworthy is the Bible is the last question today. How trustworthy is your Bible? Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. Titus writes, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. God who cannot lie promised. Well, you can stake your soul on that. Turn to the right now, about seven or eight pages. You'll be in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And I want you to look at one other verse that connects with the past, the, the immediate one I wrote, or read from Titus. That by two immutable things, Hebrews 6, 18, in which it was impossible for God to lie. Look at the phrase, impossible for God to lie. God cannot lie, Titus 1, 2. Hebrews 6, 18, it is impossible for God to lie. Now, look up here. I got you writing and got you looking in your Bible, but I want you to hear this. You can't miss this. If the God of the Bible is who we say he is, if the God of the Bible is perfect, if the God that we worship this morning is, in fact, truth, If he is fully trustworthy, could he give us a book that was full of lies? Absolutely not. It's it's in Congress. It's it's incompatible with his personality. He can't be a perfect, holy, righteous, just God and say, I'm giving you the truth, and then give me a book that's not trustworthy. He can't do that. John Wesley said it well for us. If there is one falsehood in the Bible, it did not come from the God of truth. If there is one falsehood in the Bible, then your Bible did not come from the God of truth. If the Scripture can err, then we have no standard. We have no authority by which we can judge whether something is right or wrong, morally or ethically. We we have no basis to evaluate doctrine, what is truth and what is falsehood and what is heresy. 
If our Bible is not trustworthy and reliable, you have no real compass to direct you in life. So you just have to go off of your intuition, your feelings, follow the crowd, whatever. But that's not the way it is. God cannot lie. God is trustworthy. God will never deceive us. And so we use two other words that are there on your sheet that you must know. One is infallible, infallible. And what does it mean, infallible? It means incapable of error. The Bible is infallible. It's incapable. It's impossible for the Bible to have an error in it, or the whole character of God falls apart. And the second word is inerrant, which means it's free from error. There are no errors in the Holy Scripture. The Bible is infallible, incapable of error, inerrant, free from error. Listen to this word from F.B. Meyer, the great English teacher of last century. He says it so beautifully, quote, if any promise of God should fail, the heavens would clothe themselves with sackcloth. The sun, the moon, and the stars would reel from their courses. The universe would rock And a hollow wind would moan through a ruined creation that awful message that God could lie. Let me read it again. It's so good. If any promise of God should fail, the heavens would clothe themselves with sackcloth. The sun, the moon, and the stars would reel from their courses. The universe would rock And a hollow wind would moan through a ruined creation that awful message that God can lie. But my friend, I'll tell you, this universe will never rock. And the heavens will never shake with that message. God cannot lie. And his word is infallible. And his word is inerrant. And you can trust your Bible. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.